Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. KYW Original Podcasts. The Eagles record five weeks into the 2020 season, 1-3-1 after a 38-29 loss to a now 4-0 Steelers team. Uh, both Ray Didinger and I predicted the Eagles to lose on Friday. I predicted the Eagles to lose 27-20, Ray 20-17. So, based on both of our predictions, 29 points would have felt like enough for the Eagles to win, but they didn't. So I put this loss on the defense. Ray, how do you see it? Yeah, I think that's pretty much where it goes. If you um, if you had told me when we were having our conversation on Friday that the Eagles were going to score 29 against the Steelers, who are the number two defense in all of football, I would have said 29, yeah, you'll win that game. Because the Steelers really hadn't, even though they were 3-0, and the offense hadn't really hit its stride. I mean, they had... You know, they had moved the ball sporadically, and Roethlisberger was completing some passes, but they, they weren't making big plays, and they didn't seem very explosive on offense. Um, so I, I didn't expect – I expected it to be a real low-scoring game. I thought mm-hmm. the Steelers would win really on the strength of their defense. turned out to be the opposite. I mean, it turned out to be a, you know, a great piece of quarterbacking by Ben Roethlisberger, who just picked the Eagles apart. I mean, just killed them, especially on third down. I can't remember the last time a quarterback was absolutely perfect on third down, but he was. He was 13 for 13. Uh, and the rookie, Chase Claypool from Notre Dame, just had the day of days. Uh, and the Eagles' defense just didn't have any answers. I didn't bring in, in any of my conversations about this game leading up to the game with Merrill Reese or with anybody. I didn't bring Chase Claypool's name up once. Where was he on your on your very copious notepad, Ray, before this game yesterday? Oh, he was there um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, he was uh, he was a very intriguing player in the draft. Uh, he's a, a big kid. He's six feet four, but uh, went to the combine and ran incredibly fast, ran way faster than anybody thought he was going to, because a lot of people were talking about him as, as a tight end. But he ran like a wide receiver, and that just jumped his stock up way high. So he moves up into the high second round. And through the first three games here, he hadn't caught a lot of passes, but he had been their big play guy. He was the only guy that was averaging big numbers per catch. He was averaging over 20 yards per catch. So it was, it was obvious that uh, he and Roethlisberger had already developed a little bit of a chemistry, and when Roethlisberger was looking for a big play, he wasn't afraid of looking for this rookie. Uh, and in this game, he got rolling early, and you know the Eagles are now a team – Defensively, they're in, they're sort of in a twilight zone uh, in terms of how they're covering. They're they're converting from a zone defense into a more of a man-to-man kind of defense, and they don't play it particularly well right now. If they don't get a big pass rush, if they don't get a lot of pressure on the quarterback, and the quarterback has a little time to scan the field, you can have a lot of success uh, running pick plays and rub plays and bunch formation kinds of things against this man-to-man defense and. You know, Roethlisberger's seen it all in his career. I mean, he's played a long time, and there isn't much that he hasn't seen. And when he sees a defense that looks a little confused, and when you have linebackers who can't cover, which the Eagles kind of do, 
uh, he, he'll take advantage of it, and he took advantage of it all day long. And that leads right to my next thing, because you're right, Chase Claypool, he was really impressive yesterday. Him and Big Ben had that chemistry going, despite this being only their fourth game together, and you mentioned the linebackers. What do you make of that game-defining third-and-eight play with about three minutes to go, 35-yard line, late fourth quarter, Eagles down two, and lining up against uh, across from Chase Claypool, who had torched the Eagles all afternoon, was Nathan Gary. What was your reaction to that whole play? Um, bad design, bad idea, bad result. <laughs> that's, that's, about, that's about as well as you can sum it up. I mean, that was, yeah, you get down to a situation like that where this is a third down play, and this is, I mean, this is a play that you've got to make or the game's over. Uh, and you wind up in a coverage where you where you allow them to have their hot receiver lined up against your weakest defender. Can't have that. You can't be in that situation. Uh, and, look, Roethlisberger saw it as soon as he got to the line of scrimmage. That wasn't the original play that was called. Uh, it was an empty form, empty backfield, and so Roethlisberger was really expecting the Eagles to come with a blitz. Teams usually do when the quarterback's in an empty backfield. Uh, and they were, I think they were going to throw some kind of a short slant or dig and try and just convert the third and eight. Uh, but he came up to the line of scrimmage, and he saw that the Eagles were playing. They had shifted into a, into a zone this time with a cover two, but the guy directly across from Claypool is Nate Gary, who has all kinds of problems covering guys down the field. Uh, and he saw where the safety McLeod was. He wasn't in any position to be able to help, so it basically amounted to a one-on-one. Uh, and Roethlisberger took it immediately and uh, turns into the play that puts the game away. And that's, you know, that's, that's a situation where your defensive coordinator just can't allow himself to be in that position. So you can give the Steelers a lot of credit for, and you give the quarterback a lot of credit for recognizing it and taking advantage of it. But from an X's and O's standpoint, I think it's a play where your defensive coordinator comes out of it looking pretty bad. Speaking of Jim Schwartz, um, post-game availabilities are understandably different this season because of the pandemic and everything's done uh, through video conferencing and nobody can go in the locker room. So understandably, it's different. But Jim Schwartz, in his time here in Philadelphia, and this is his fifth season, has never been available after a game. Win or loss, never been available. Um, so it, Ray, in your years covering football, I have two, this is a two part question In your years covering football, how common is it for the defensive coordinator to be available right after a game? Unlike Jim Schwartz, who's available on the Tuesday after the game. Um, how common is that in your years covering football and should Jim Schwartz have been available after this game? Well, he said he's made it a policy, and he's been consistent with it that uh, he he doesn't talk till Tuesday. And his his excuse for that, his rationale for that, is that uh, he wants to look at the film. He wants he wants time to study the study the tape, and uh, before he meets the press, he begins answering the questions. I I, I think that's kind of weak. I mean, I kind I, I mean, it sounds good, I guess, on the surface, but what winds up happening is um, on a day like yesterday you wind up with the players having to answer for your decisions. You know, I think, I think the coach has to be accountable for his decisions. Uh, and, but Schwartz just doesn't want to do it. He's not the most media-friendly guy anyway. Uh, so I think this idea of, now nah, I'll talk on Tuesday, I'm not talking after the game, is just his way of avoiding something he would rather avoid. But I, I've always felt that, uh, that it's a little unfair to his players because you get guys like McLeod and and Cox and all that have to come out and, and now they have to answer the questions about the play calls and that's not their you know they shouldn't be in that position if it's if there are questions to be asked about strategy the coach should be available to answer them how would you grade 
Jim Schwartz's performance as Eagles defensive coordinator throughout the entirety of his tenure here, which again is in his in his fifth season. How how would you grade Jim Schwartz in terms of his his coaching, his scheme, and everything that comes with his responsibilities? Um, they have been um, they've been good against the run. If if you, if you look at the time in over the years that he's been here, they have been one of the better, uh, certainly a top ten and sometimes higher. Uh, teams in defending against the run. Uh, they've been good at that. Um, they have been very good. Uh, they've been very good generally uh, in the red zone. Uh, and that was certainly, boy, that was certainly true the year they won the Super Bowl. I mean, teams were moving the ball on them and getting yards against them. Uh, but they weren't, they weren't able to score when they got inside, when they got inside the 20. Uh, and on third down, they've been, it, I mean, it's been up and down. Uh, but they've, they've had their stretches where they've played pretty well there. But it's uh, I, I've never been a big fan of uh, of his particular style of play. Uh, I I understand that he's a guy that doesn't like to blitz, but I think that uh, I think there are times when it's kind of called for. Uh, he relies entirely on his defensive line to generate pressure, and sometimes it works, as it did in San Francisco. The defensive line just overwhelmed the 49ers and overwhelmed the quarterback and got you a win out there. But other weeks, and this is an example, when you get up against a team that has a pretty good offensive line and a smart quarterback that gets rid of the ball in a hurry, then you've you got to change it up. You've got to do different things. You've got to find ways to sort of knock him off stride. And they didn't even come close to doing that against Roethlisberger. I mean, he was 13 for 13 uh, completing passes on third down. And when you're the defensive coordinator, you just can't allow that to happen. I feel like, Ray, that in this time here, and, and, and this is just off the top of my head, I, don't, I haven't like mapped it out or anything like that, I feel like in his time here, he's been criticized more by, by the fan base, by, by those who covered the sport, more so than he's been praised. So I guess a more specific question regarding Schwartz is, considering everything that you said, and, they, and, and it's brought up a lot, the Eagles defense gave up over 500 yards in their Super Bowl victory. If they don't win that game, is Jim Schwartz still the defensive coordinator today? Uh, if they, if they didn't win that game? Yeah. If they don't win that, that Super Bowl. Um, I don't know. I, I, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's a very hypothetical question. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how to answer that one. Yeah. I mean, they certainly didn't win that game with their defense. I mean, that was the first 500 yard passing game in the history of the Super Bowl. Uh, and somehow you managed to come out uh, on the winning end. That ain't going to happen very often. Um, but I think that I, I you know, I think that there have been stretches there. As I said, they've generally been a very good team. They've been generally been a very good team against the run. Uh, I mean, the year that they won the Super Bowl in 2017, they didn't allow a single rushing touchdown all year at at the link. They didn't allow. If you go back on that, it's an amazing statistic that in all the games they played at the link that year, which was the whole regular season and then the two postseason games, they did not allow a single rushing touchdown. So they've been a good rushing defense and. They've had their moments as a pass defense. I mean, they've been pretty good on takeaways, and as I said, they've been really good in the red zone. So, I mean, there is that, and there's enough of an argument there that you could kind of say, yeah, I know that there's, you know, nobody's perfect, but I think on on balance we've won a lot of games with this guy calling the play. So, yeah, I think he'd probably still be here. A lot of it has to do with how the organization perceives him uh, and his working relationship with Doug Peterson. I mean, Peterson likes to have a defensive coordinator that he can just trust, and mm-hmm. he just kind of runs everything. You know, Doug really doesn't mess with the defense at all. I mean, during the game, you hardly ever see those two guys talking. 
I mean, Doug's going to run the offense. He's going to let Jim run the defense. And I think he's comfortable with that structure. So on the basis of that, and you look at the overall one-loss record, you know, I think he might still be here. Yeah, I honestly think so. But, I mean, I don't think he's ever his coaching has ever been called more into question than it, than it is now after the game yesterday because that was clearly, clearly a coaching blunder. And I got one more question about about Schwartz. Um, if Malcolm Jenkins is 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 wearing an Eagles uniform yesterday and is on that field during that third and eight play, does it happen the way it happens? Does Malcolm Jenkins bail out Jim Schwartz for that scheme that he called? Yeah, I was thinking I was thinking exactly that when I watched that play unfold uh, because that's the kind of thing that Malcolm was really really good at was was seeing situations like that, recognizing mismatches like that. Uh, and and making an adjustment, making a call, making a change, or or himself taking it upon himself to jump in and bail out uh, bail out a bad call. Um, I think that there's I, I've now who knows? I mean, <laughs> Malcolm is far away now. He's playing in New Orleans, um, so it's so you're just guessing on this. But I thought the same thing that if Malcolm Jenkins was out there, he would have seen that matchup immediately. He would have seen it as quickly as Roethlisberger did, and I think that uh, it's safe to say that he would have done something to try and adjust. Jake Elliott's field goal attempt—it's um, it, funny. Like every week, I feel like there's a different thing that that we debate whether or not Doug should have done it or not. Should Doug have uh, had Jake Elliott kick that 57 yarder there, uh, considering where they were at Heinz Field? Um, or should he have gone for it and, and tried to get the fourth down conversion and keep the ball out of the Steelers' hands as much as possible, considering how the defense could not slow them down yesterday? Um, no, I didn't have a problem with it. When they got to that situation, I, I fully expected them to kick the field goal because uh, look, 57 yards is certainly no chip shot, but we've seen Elliott kick them farther, uh, and you saw the kick. I mean, the kick had plenty. I mean, it... it I mean, it, it had plenty of distance and had plenty of, uh, and it would have it would have cleared it. He just he just missed, and he didn't miss by much, mm-hmm. uh, just a foot or so. Um, so I thought it was the right call, and at that point, it would have given you the lead, and, and I think changed sort of changed the texture of the game. Uh, um, I mean, we've debated some of these calls before about uh, when to go for it, when not to go for it. Um, this time, I was in agreement with Doug. I expected him to kick the field goal. Uh, and I think you saw, I mean, the way Elliott hit it. I mean, if he's if he's two feet to the left, it's a, uh, it's you know, the Eagles have the lead. So I didn't have a problem with that. No, he certainly didn't miss it by much. Uh, Ray, what do you think's up with Carson Wentz and Zach Ertz? Uh, two guys that have played together for so long, they don't seem to be connecting right now. No, they don't, uh, and that's that's a concern. I mean, one for six, six targets, only one catch uh, in this game. Uh, I didn't expect that. In fact, in, you know, when we were doing the pregame show yesterday on, on NBC Sports Philly, we're each asked to make a prediction about something that's going to happen in the game. And my prediction was that I thought Zach Ertz was going to have his best game of the year. I thought he was going to have, you know, I, I said eight catches for 75 yards or something. Just because I kind of thought that with the pass rush of the Steelers that, that Wentz was going to have to be getting rid of the ball quick. Uh, and you, know, you have the outside receivers still at this point are in a state of flux. So I thought his surest receiver and his easiest receiver to find has always been Zach Ertz. So I thought this all sort of pointed towards Ertz having a big day. And, boy, totally the opposite. You know, one catch for six yards, um, six targets, which means five times you tried to get to him and you couldn't. And the one interception, well, the, 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 the big interception early in the second half that led to a touchdown by the Steelers was on a ball two Ertz where he, um, he kind of gets bumped off the route and, 
you know, people are going to probably criticize Wentz for, oh, there's Wentz throwing another interception. But really, that wasn't on him. I mean, that's a pure timing route. And he's throwing the ball to where he thinks the receiver and expects the receiver to be. And Ertz gets bumped off there and, you know, doesn't, doesn't fight through it. And the Steelers wind up with an easy interception. So I thought that was really kind of more on the receiver than it was the quarterback. So, yeah, I mean, something isn't quite right there. I mean, there were times when Wentz was trying to get him the ball and Ertz wasn't, wasn't looking or he hadn't turned around quite quickly enough. And, you know, for years we got used to the fact that the two of these guys were in totally simpatico. And Ertz was always where he was supposed to be and he was always looking for the ball. And whenever Wentz was trouble was in trouble, he was looking for 86. We're not there right now. And why that is, I don't know. Does that have anything to do with his contract? I don't know that either. Uh, but right now, I, get, I think losing Goddard has taken them out of their normal comfort zone of the 12 personnel, and it's kind of changed a lot of things in the passing game, uh, and it's certainly disrupted the, the timing between the quarterback and Zach Ertz. It has definitely been a, a rough stretch for Zach Ertz. And, Ray, the last one I have for you has nothing to do with yesterday's Eagles loss. Very unfortunate, very gruesome, very devastating injury, ankle injury, right ankle injury, to Dak Prescott yesterday, compound fracture, dislocation. What's your reaction to what happened? Yeah, it's a shame. Um, I've always been kind of a Dak Prescott fan. I mean, I liked him in college. Uh, I thought he was a guy that was um, had a chance to come in the NFL and do well. I'm not a blue-chip guy, not a high-draft-pick guy, but I, a guy that I just I always liked him in college. I thought he was a real tough competitor. Uh, and I thought if he got found the right situation in the NFL, he could play and win in the NFL, and he's done that. So I've always been kind of a Dak Prescott fan, and he was off to a great start this year, uh, leading the league in passing yardage and, and really playing well in, in a year when he was playing as the franchise player, playing for a new contract. So I felt bad for him. I know I know how Eagles fans feel about the Cowboys generally, and you know any kind of bad news for the Cowboys is good news here. I, I wasn't feeling that. I felt bad for him. But, I mean, you just want to look at it from an Eagles standpoint. Boy, it certainly changes things in the NFC East. Because, I mean, the Eagles are 1-3-1, and one, and they don't look like they're going to turn it around anytime soon. But um, this really changes things. I mean, the, the Cowboys' defense is really bad. Uh, I don't see it getting a whole lot better over the course of this year. The Cowboys are just they're going to have to outscore people. That's what this whole year amounts to. Uh, and they're not going to be able to do it as readily. With uh, Look, Andy Dalton's a pretty good backup quarterback. I mean, he'll come in and he'll make some plays, and he'll move the ball. But that team has to be dynamic on offense to make up for their defense, and I just don't know that they can be that uh, without Dak Prescott. He was the guy that kind of made it go, and so they're a dramatically different team without him. Certainly wishing Dak Prescott nothing but the best. Ray, thank you as always for the insight, wonderful insight. Uh, Eagles, Ravens, tough matchup next Sunday. Uh, We will preview it Friday morning. Thanks for the time. Have a wonderful week. All right. You do the same, David. Talk to you then. Talk to you then, Ray. Hall of Famer Ray Dininger of 94 WIP. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.